0: Turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. We've been studying this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are now in chapter 18. Uh, We are going to, I didn't say this to the first service, but I'll let you all know, don't tell them. We're going to finish this book about the end of May. We're going to be into the... Uh, Good Friday account on Good Friday, the resurrection on Sunday morning, and then finish up the book in um, end of May, beginning June. We're going to do a, a series on the uh, fruit of the spirit in Galatian, and uh, after that, we're going to do a, a, small, a short series, four or five weeks on question why. Why do we gather on Sunday? Why do we have community groups? You know, why do we why do we partake in the Lord's supper and 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 the, the uh, uh, communion, stuff of that nature, and baptism, I should say, and then come in the fall, I think the plan is we're going to do this the, as we celebrate the Reformation, we're going to do the short book of Jude uh, come in September, and then in October, we're going to do a series, and you're thinking, October, can we please get to April, um, <laughs> and then in, in October, we're definitely going to do something on the Reformation, probably the five solas. Uh, alone, meaning alone, which came from the Reformation. So just to give you guys up to speed. So that's kind of where we're going, unless the Lord changes his mind and convinces the pastoral team. But, so John 18, let's, let's read God's Word together. Reading from an ESV, Bible's in the back. going to dismiss the kids in a minute. You grab a Bible if you don't have one. And we're in John chapter 18, where we left off last week, beginning at verse 28. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four gospel accounts, one gospel. I say it all the time because his name is Jesus. One gospel. John chapter 18, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show but what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33. Pilate entered the headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nations and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, no, nah, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So children, if dismissed, if there's uh, opportunities for you to learn on your level, teachers are dismissed as well. And we're in John. Now, keep your, keep your finger in. John 18 is where we're going to be. Let me just give us a running start. If you remember, chapters 13 through 16 is what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. It's the night that Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples, teaching them many things, promising many things to them, loving and comforting them and preparing them for his departure. He would go back to the Father, back to the glory he shared with him before the foundations of the world through or via the cross. The cross is ever before him. In 17, in chapter 17, our high priest, Jesus, intercedes for them and intercedes for us and prays on on our behalf, even though Jesus knows that after he's done with his prayer, he is going to be bound and taken and later to be crucified. But yet, the Son of God cares and loves and serves others even in the midst of what lies ahead. Absolutely amazing. By the time we get to chapter 18, it's Friday morning. It's very early, it's still dark. Judas Iscariot leads a group of armed men to that place that he knew Jesus was going to be with his disciples. He had gone there often. He he, he had a group of maybe three, four, five, six hundred men came to the Garden of Gethsemane to capture and seize Jesus. It was there that Judas kissed the Messiah to show them who was it that they were looking for. For. Also there is when Jesus says, I am, and reveals his divine name, and at that point, people fall back down onto the ground. Getting a glimpse of his glory was, was too much power for them to, stand re, to, to, to remain standing. After a brief scuttle, we know, with the Apostle Peter, he pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest, Luke tells us, the doctor, that Jesus healed him to put your swords away. They came out expecting trouble with a a massive amount of soldiers for one man. They did not understand the mission, which we'll see today, that Jesus was on, expected him to fight, but he does not. He voluntarily gives himself To These men they bind him they bound him they cuffed him and say and they took him away to a man named Annas if we remember Annas was the high priest or at least considered one of the high priests. He was a man an older man He was the patriarchal high priest of Jerusalem He had five sons and a son-in-law that were also high priest and Annas is an interesting story because Annas was a high priest back in early six eight nine 10 AD, and Rome removed him from the high priest office and put other high priests in his place, and the Jewish people didn't like Rome meddling with their religious duties in the, in the in the temple, so he was still considered a high priest. It was an office for life according to the law of Moses, and that's why we see him going to Caiaphas, the son-in-law who was high priest, and to Annas who was high priest. It's sort of like when you're, when you're the president of the United States and you're your term is over, they still call you president or governor, even though your, your, uh, your, your term is over. So he brings him to Annas, probably the oldest high priest in Jerusalem, probably with the most power, and Jesus is brought to this Annas where the trial begins. That's where we left off last week. Now if you remember, there are, there are two trials that are going to happen to Jesus. The first trial is what they call a religious trial. Jesus is brought to Annas. Then he's brought to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then he's brought before the Sanhedrin, where he's found guilty of blasphemy. Three phases, one trial. The second trial is the Roman trial, which we will pick up today, where Jesus is brought before Pilate. Luke tells us that he was also brought to Herod, who was in town, if you remember that story. And Herod doesn't want nothing to do with it and sends him back to Pilate. Three separate phases of one uh, excuse me, Roman trial. So as you're reading the gospel accounts, you need to know that to put the stories together. Now, as we as we picked up last week, we noticed that he went to Annas. Now, you need to know that John only records that first phase of the religious trial before Annas. He doesn't tell us about Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Other gospel accounts do that, but he does not do that. So. We mentioned last week, and I just want to mention this again quickly, is everything about this trial is illegal. Totally illegal. It was not supposed to be done at night. It was supposed to be done out in the open during the day so that people aren't railroaded and framed. Second, Jesus did not, was not afforded any possibility of bringing uh, people as witnesses on his own account. They just said, you're guilty. Third, if you remember from last week... You're not even supposed to be convicted or, or even be heard or a trial to even start unless two or three witnesses corroborate the story of the crime in which you committed. None of that was followed. They did it at night. They did it uh, without the Fifth Amendment. That We call it the Fifth Amendment. There was no witnesses. It even says in their law that when you find someone guilty of death, you're supposed to wait 24 hours. Before carrying out the execution, they found him guilty and crucified him within hours. As we jump into the text, the ecclesiastical religious trial is over. They find him guilty, and they bring him before Pilate. As I said, they brought before Pilate. Pilate's in Jerusalem. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate usually lives in a place called Caesarea Maritime. It's by the sea. But because Jerusalem is packed, it's Passover season, there's many, many people there, he brings all his army or most of his army and his, and his people into Jerusalem just in case things get out of hand. So the governor is in Jerusalem. Now, if you look at your Bibles in chapter 18, just want to point this out just quickly here. Verse 36, excuse me, verse 38, my eyes are going. Verse 38 and verse 39, somewhere between 38 and 39, John doesn't record this, it's not it's not fitting his purpose, is when he went, Jesus was sent to Herod and then back to Pilate. John, as he's given this eyewitness account. Is not interested in that. He's just giving the story from the position of Jesus before Pilate. But if you're doing a a harmony of the Gospels, you need to know that. It's at that time in verse 38 and 39 that he sent to Herod uh, and then back to Pilate, where Pilate picks up the story. Where, excuse me, John picks up the story with Pilate. So you just need to know that. That's the point where Jesus is sent to Herod. Luke 23 is where you can find that. Now, remember, John, the apostle John, the eyewitness who wrote this account, tells us in his book, in this, in this letter, in this book, why he's writing this letter. We don't need to ask, you know, John, why, you put this, why have you told this story, this narrative about Jesus? He tells us in chapter 20 that Jesus did many things, did many signs, which are not written in this book. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he decided what was in the book what was not in the book. He says, but I'm writing these things in this book so that you may believe. That you may come to faith that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, of the same nature as God, and believing you may have life in his name. What's also very interesting in John is the very last sentence of the entire gospel account, he writes this, now there are also many things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that that would be written. So John is saying, look, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that happened. I'm telling you this story from from the point of of Jesus going only to Annas, not the other trials, only to Pilate, not to Herod, for a purpose. I want you to see the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of the King of kings so that you will trust him, you will believe him. So that's the point. Okay. So as we get into this text, that's what we're going to see. So three things. First, the incrimination or the accusation. Begin with an I, so I use incrimination. Verse 28. Then we'll go into the interrogation. The, uh, Pilate questioned Jesus, and Jesus answers Pilate. He's being interrogated. And then finally, the implication. What does it matter today? What is Jesus saying about the kingdom? And that's where we'll end. So, those three things. Number one, first the incrimination. Verse 28. They took Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. Remember, that's also the house of Annas. It was a courtyard that the high priests, many of the high priests shared together. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's quarters or praetorium, some of you have in your Bibles. That's just the headquarters of the base where the governors were. It was very early in the morning. Sun just came up. They themselves, though, that's Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, religious leaders, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, if you've been tracking with us, you say, wait, wait a minute. Eat. What do you mean, eat the Passover?" Didn't we say that Jesus ate the Passover already on Thursday night? Hopefully, you're tracking with me, and, and that, that should stand out. It says now that Jesus is being led to Kiev, to Pilate's headquarters by the religious people, and they stop, and they're like, "We're not going in. We've gone this far. We're not going any further." Because if we do that, we're going to be defiled. We won't be able to eat of the Passover. The Mishnah, which is the oral law of Judaism, says this The dwelling place of Gentiles are unclean. Now, Moses' law doesn't say that's one of their religious, because religious people like to do that, they like to make up laws. They made up laws, and they're like, don't go near that. If you go near a Gentile during the festivals, you're going to be unclean for seven days and have all these different rituals and cleansings for the Jews so that they can become ceremonial clean again. So John's saying that they went as far as the Gentile court. They said, look, we can't go in. We have to celebrate the feast. It's going to take us seven days for this purification to take place. So we're going to stay right here. Go get the governor. That's what's happening. So the question And I want to deal with this. The question is, what Passover? Did Jesus eat the Passover, which you just read in John 13? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, similar. Synoptic gospels say that Jesus ate the Passover on Thursday. What Passover are they talking about? Okay, so we have to talk about that for a minute. There are books and books and books written on this. And I'm going to spare you all that. I've done a lot of reading. Let me give you the two, I think, possibilities. Remember, God's word, inerrant and trustworthy. So when you read something like that, you're like, all right, something I'm not getting. God's smart, I'm not. That's the way it works. So let me give you the two possibilities. Number one, some scholars believe that there was a difference in calendar dates, some went with a lunar calendar, some went with a solar calendar. The northern Jews would have, have supper, the Lord's Supper on a Thursday night, and the southern Jews, Judea, Jerusalem, would have it on Friday night. Northern Galilee, southern Judea, and there would be a Thursday night and a Friday night. And Jesus, being from Galilee, would have had the Passover on Thursday night, not Friday night. Friday night was for the Jerusalem Jews. Some see a difference in calendar dates. And that would say, okay, well, Jesus had on Thursday night with his disciples, and then Friday night the Jews in Jerusalem, they don't want to get defiled, they don't want to go into the temple, uh, excuse me, into the praetorium. They're going to stay out. That's possible. The other possibility, which I, I think is probably a stronger possibility, is John is not merely talking about the Passover dinner itself, but the whole feast of Passover, which is part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jews had certain festivals everybody had to go to Jerusalem for. And the Feast of Passover was one of them. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread started with the Feast of Passover. It was one full week. You Start with the Passover, you go right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was very common to speak of that week as the Passover festival week. If you look at the regulations in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, show how rapidly the Feast of Unleavened Bread became incorporated into the Passover celebration. Say, well, do you have a verse for that? I do. Luke 22 1, the same season. Luke says this Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So eat the Passover, they would not go into the praetorium because they eat the Passover probably means eat the Passover in the feast, in the festival that lasted all week. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah, a good king, is reestablishing the Passover. And he talks about it, the people coming together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of the unleavened bread. And you see how they're intertwined with each other. Either way, later that morning, Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross at the time when either the Passover sacrifice was happening or the first day of the unleavened bread, which is part of the Passover week, that first day, they're still offering sacrifices and burnt offerings on the altar. So as Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they're being sacrificed at the altar while Jesus is being crucified. Now, let me just say this. Jesus does not need to be crucified on the first day of Passover so that he becomes the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the sacrificial system comes together in fulfillment in Jesus Christ, whether it's a Monday or a Thursday. He is who he is. So you could take either way. That's not the point John is trying to make. But that's the deal with the Passover. The point that John is making here by talking about defilement and talking about the Passover is to show you what giant hypocrites religious people are. That's what he's saying. How hypocritical religious people are. Now, if you've never heard me say that, like, he's a pastor. He's talking about religious people that way. Because the way we define religion is religion is a system of beliefs that tell us, if I do good, if I am right, if I obey, if I follow the law, if I go to church, if I, if I pray hard, if I read my Bible, if I give to the church, if I do all things, God will love me, God will accept me, and God will, will forgive me. That's religion. In fact, people who hold that system of beliefs look down on others. You're not living up to my expectation. Look how good I'm doing. God, you owe me when hard times and difficulties come. Where were you, God? I've done all this for you. That's religion. The gospel. The gospel is that God loves me. God accepts me. God forgives me because of Jesus Christ, his perfect moral record on my behalf. His death on the cross in my place is the fulfillment or the payment for my sins and therefore, because I am loved in Christ, because I am accepted from the cross, because I am forgiven because of Jesus Therefore, I'll obey, and I will follow the commands of God. Not in order to be loved, but because I'm loved. That's a slippery slope, family. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. Martin Luther was right. Religion is the default mode of every human heart. Be careful. That's why we say it here often, because I can become a self-righteous person as well, looking down on others, mandating them to follow what I think they should do. These religious hypocrites and their meticulous scruples are concerned about becoming defiled which would prevent them from keeping the feast but they are not at all concerned about the moral guilt of condemning an innocent man to death violating every law possible in Judaism to get a wrong judicial guilt out of Jesus. That's what John is showing us. Calvin writes this, these hypocrites, <laughs> you know, they didn't have they, they a lack of words back then. I'll tell you, Calvin and some of the other reformers, they, they're, pretty, they're pretty rough. This is what Calvin writes. These hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and greed that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell and are only afraid of external pollution. Get them, Calvin, right? Verse 29. So Pilate's like, all right, uh, you're not coming in, I'll go out. Pilate goes out, verse 29. He goes outside and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? What's the accusation? What's the incrimination? What are you saying? Verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, I don't know what that means. There's no crime. He's just doing evil. We would not have delivered him over to you. Okay. The Jewish people are in a rough spot. It is true according to their law of blas- blasphemy, you could be put to death for blasphemy, but quite honestly, Pilate could care less about their religious law, right? And, and for the record, just so we are on the same page, Jesus is found guilty of blasphemy. The things Jesus said is blasphemous if it were not true. Unfortunately for them, it, everything he said was true, right? Mark 14 Right before this takes place, Jesus brought to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. I just want to bring this out. He said, and Caiaphas says, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, if you don't know your Old Testament, that's Daniel 7. Jesus saying, I am coming to judge the world and everyone will worship me. I'm the guy Daniel 7 is talking about. They knew exactly what he meant. It says the high priest tore his garments. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision, Sanhedrin? They all condemned him as deserving death. Blasphemy. Speaking evil, a derogatory toward God. Speaking evil against God or saying things about God that are not true. You're a God coming to judge us? Blasphemy. And Jesus is like, Yeah, actually, it's true. And that is exactly what's going to happen. Again, Roman don't care. Rome don't care. Pilate and the Jews are having this dance. We'll talk more about it next week. The Jews want him dead. They don't want to do it. Pilate wants nothing to do with it. Let him go. But Pilate, according to antiquity, we know that Pilate had problems with the Jewish people. We know that Caesar, the king, had problems with Pilate because Pilate couldn't keep the Jerusalem Jewish people under wraps and quiet. He had many problems with them. They hated him. He hated them. So Pilate's like, look, I, I don't want a problem here. He's done nothing wrong. You do it. And they're like, nope, we don't want that. You do it. And it's going back and forth, back and forth. Look what it says in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourself. I mean, you got nothing. He's doing evil. Really? Go take him yourself. Judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Again, notice the irony. It may be illegal for the Jewish authorities to take corporal punishment into their own hands, but it was okay in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, the first deacon, or the the original deacons, got hit in the head and busted up, you know, his head in rocks. They dragged him out front and they killed him. It's okay for that, but we don't want to do it now. You do it, Pilate. Pilate's like, there's nothing for me here. You do it. Take them by your own law. No, we can't do that. Stalemate. And let, let me tell you the reason why. There's two reasons why. Number one is fear. You know, and I know, fear is is, is is fear can be very, very hard. The Jewish people were afraid. They were afraid to do anything with Jesus because they saw the crowds, they saw the people, they didn't want to turn the place upside down. They were afraid. They feared man more than they feared God. And that's devastating. That's debilitating. The other reason that we see, and I think, I think Pilate was afraid too, we're gonna see. Pilate's like, you know what, I'm done. And they're like, oh yeah, well, uh, he, uh, someone who says they're king, he says in, down in chapter 19, is not a friend of Caesar. You remember Caesar, he don't like you either. All right, crucify him. You see, They didn't want to take matters into their own hands because they were afraid. Pilate wound up saying, just go, you know what, go crucify him because he did not want no problem. It was fear. But also look at the text. It's also because it was a fulfillment. Remember, John's ultimate goal in this narrative of the passion of the Christ is to show that Jesus is in full control. He's sovereign over the world. Verse 32. This was to fulfill what? The word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Really? Yeah, just back in chapter 12 of John. He said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will what? Draw all men to myself. He said this and he showed this, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The Jews would execute people by what? Taking them and throwing them down and stoning them. The Romans would execute people by hoisting them up and lifting them and nailing them to a cross. Jesus, in Matthew 20, on his way to Jerusalem, this very very instant, you know, week before this incident we're talking about, turns to his disciples, and he says this to them. He says to them, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered. He's going to be delivered to the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, and they'll condemn him to death. It already happened. And deliver him to the Gentiles, be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on a third day, rise again. I know what kind of death I'm going to die. I'm in sovereign control over this. And Caiaphas, his determination to, to secure a crucifixion actually fulfills God's divine purpose. I mentioned it last week, the most ugliest, heinous sin in all the universe. God takes it, bends it, and brings about his glory and our salvation. Again, we see man is responsible, yet God is sovereign. You've got to have a track in your brain for that. Man is responsible, God is sovereign. The crucifixion fulfills multiple scriptures. Not only just what Jesus had been telling them over and over again. Do you know in Psalm 22, when it talks about the Messiah, it's a messianic psalm, it says, I can count all my bones. If they had taken him out and, and threw rocks at him, They would have broke his bones, but to fulfill the scriptures that no bone be broken, remember they hung him on the cross and they went to see he was dead. He was dead already. They stuck a a, a sword in his side. John, excuse me, Jesus back in chapter three of John reaches back to an Old Testament narrative in Numbers 21 where Moses has said, to have lift up the serpent. You remember that story? Lift up the serpent in the wilderness. And God told Moses, lift that up, and all those people who were bit by poisonous serpents would find their healing if they just looked to the snake. And then Jesus takes that same story and says, that is what I will do when I am lifted up on the cross. Not stoned to death. But when I'm lifted up on the cross, it will be the means by which your poisoned, broken, rebellious heart will find their healing. It's on the cross. One more. In Deuteronomy 21, this is what it says. The law of Moses. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Family, family, All of us have committed crimes. Sproul calls it cosmic treason against the almighty deserving death. Paul takes that same language and says Jesus wasn't stoned to death on the ground, but he was hung up. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It was on the cross in which Jesus bore our curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Listen, God knows what he's doing. God is in control. God is orchestrating this in the hands of wicked men. And God is in control because of our salvation. So we see the incrimination. Look at the interrogation, verse 33. Pilate goes back into his headquarters again and calls Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 33. Jesus says, do you say this of your own? Or did somebody else say this about me? Very smart answer. No surprise, he's God, right? Smart answer. If he said, I am king of the Jews, Pilate and everybody else might have taken it the wrong way. If he says, I'm not king of the Jews, then he's a liar and God can't lie. So he says, basically, well, what are you trying to get with that question? Something you said? Something someone's telling you? Where are we going with this? Verse 35, Pilate says, am I a Jew? Oh, so uh, you're talking about a a religious king. Your own nation, the chief priests, has delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom. In other words, I'm the king. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Well, the word kingdom, just so you know, because you've got to get into the mind of the first century, the word kingdom, both then and now, both, excuse me, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, first and foremost, is defined by God's sovereign rule. Okay? It's foremost and defined by God's sovereign rule, the reign itself by the king of kings. Secondarily, it's over the realm of which he rules. The biblical idea of the kingdom of God is deeply rooted in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. The kingdom of God and the kingdom uh, 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 that's coming is something that the the Jewish people long for. It was something that multiple scriptures point to. It is something the prophets spoke about the coming kingdom of God. It begins in Genesis 1, where we see God the Creator creating us in the imago day in the image and likeness of God. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates the world, and he's with them. The Bible says he's walking with them. He is having fellowship with them. There is shalom, peace, innocence, beauty, glory. God creates Adam, the dust of the ground, and and Eve from, from a rib, and he gives them this command, which is a great command, by the way. Eat and drink, be fruitful, and multiply. But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's the king, the king of kings, walking in shalom, in, in peace and paradise with his people, with his creation. Everything in creation is, 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 is an act of worship. Everything in creation is used and devoted to an experience in the worship of God. That's the picture of the first kingdom, the shalom. But then in chapter 3, we know sin enters the world. And fractures the shalom, fractures the kingdom of God. What ends up happening now is instead of pursuing God, instead of worshiping God, we worship created things so that our desires no longer erupt into the worship of God and we're left with emptiness and a hole in our hearts. What that means is we can enjoy to some degree food and stuff and relationship, but because it doesn't flow out of worship of the one true God, it never completely satisfies the soul. Even the good things become the ultimate things. It's things we live for. We make idols out of things that we are supposed to enjoy in the context of worship. But then, God doesn't leave us there, right? Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God speaks about a new healed coming kingdom. A kingdom in which God invades this broken and rebellious world. He promises it to Adam in John Genesis 3:15, then to Abraham and Abraham's sons. And then he raises up King David from, from, the, from the loin of, of Abraham, from the line of Abraham. And he says to King David that "You will die, but I will raise up an offspring after you. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish his throne, his kingdom, forever." All the Old Testament prophets are pointing to this beautiful and glorious day of the coming kingdom. And, and the Jewish people are so entrenched in the kingdom of God coming. I want you to feel that. It's their hope. It's what all their hope is resting on. Malachi, if you're Italian, Malachi, the last book of the Bible, talks about the coming kingdom. That was their hope, the eschatological end time hope. And then the New Testament opens up and Jesus comes. He inaugurates the kingdom. It begins and and it's a time in which God breaks in and begins to transform people into kingdom citizens through this promised kingly Messiah in the line of David and who will break in God's ruling power and capture hearts, transform people. And that all begins with the coming of the king. His name is Jesus. That's why Jesus in Mark and in the Gospels accounts begins the preaching with this statement. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The true and better king has come to make everything right. Just like a fairy tale, fairy tale story. Prince showing up, riding a white horse, kissing the princess, making everything right. All that has been broken has begun to be restored with the coming king that's why jesus' healing ministry it wasn't just doing magical tricks he was healing broken hearts he was healing broken limbs he was giving sight he was healing diseases all those things will be present in the coming kingdom so with jesus coming there's both a present reality and a future hope when we bow our knee to king jesus he becomes king and he reigns and rules in the hearts of his people until someday he will come and reign and rule on the earth. Bruch Smetsker, New Testament scholar, said this. The kingdom of God in its essence is the reign of God. The personal relation between the sovereign God and the individual. Thus there is no point in asking whether the kingdom is present or future. It is both. The future restoration is no longer a flickering hope light years away. It has become available in the present. No, he says, not to its end, but to its progressive progression toward reality or finality. So there's going to come a day that King Jesus will come and restore... Everything that's been promised from Genesis 3, the fulfillment to Abraham, to the nations will start because the king, Jesus, the lover of our soul is here. That's what Jesus came for. That's the kingdom of God Jesus is talking about. That's why in verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was this world, listen, we'd be throwing down right now that I might not be delivered over. There's going to be a fight, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Jesus is not saying I have no place here or you're not going to see any, any activity. You, you will. But it's not something that Caesar's going to see. It's not something this world will know. It's not the breaking of God into the worldly system but into his people's lives. Jesus is just contrasting the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms that will come. And, and family, I, I think, I, let me go out on a limb and say, Sometimes we are so caught up in the kingdoms of this world. You've heard me say this before, especially in the political season. You, you, you want to hold your views? Okay. Remember, there'll be no Republicans and Democrats, conservatives, left, right, in the kingdom of God. We're not voting. Uh, I don't really know. Be quiet. King Jesus is here. Bow down and worship. That's the way it's going down. He's the king. So like, Pilate, if my kingdom was like yours, that's coming and going and and given to this one, to that one, my servants would be fighting, but it's not that. It's not that. In fact, I'm a different king of a whole different kind. My purpose is that's why I'm delivered over to you. Because that's not about what's happening today. It's about the eternal kingdom and the promises of God. You wouldn't understand, Pilate. And then the implications of that, look at verse 37. Pilate said to him, all right, so, so you are a king. I, I'm just trying to get this straight, right? Uh, you're saying a lot of stuff I don't understand. You're a king. And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In other words, yes. For this purpose, I'm a king, this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I was born, I came into the world, is what? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate answered to him, what is truth? The first implication he had mentioned of King Jesus and his coming kingdom is to bear witness to the truth. Underline that. To be a king was the reason he was born, the reason he came into the world. His incarnation leaving glorious, his glory with his father, coming down and, and taking on human flesh, revealing something of that glory culminating in the cross, revealing the father to us. And, and on the cross, Jesus displays the, the absolute lawless justice of God that sin must be punished and the absolute perfect love of God as he dies in our place. So when Jesus says, "I have come to bear witness to the truth," he's not saying, "You know what? I just come, I'm going to, you know, talk with people and figure out where you know people aren't right, there's some falsehood going around, and I'm going to teach some truth here." That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. The truth according to scripture is God himself. Jesus perfectly revealed the truth of God himself. In John 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them how? Your word, Father, is truth. John's prologue in chapter one, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus defines truth in his well-known statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. God's word is truth, the, the eternal incarnate word of God is the embodiment of truth, he is the personified truth, he is the fulfillment of truth, he is the source of truth. Now I say that because we live in a culture, a kind of a crazy culture, that truth is determined by what I say it is, right? Right? It's not, it, it, truth's not something that shifts with different people and different cultures. Truth is not based on what makes people feel good. Truth is not democratically determined. Let's all vote and see what truth is. And truth is not determined by sincerity. Oh, they really mean it. They are such a nice person. It must be true. Our postmodern and pluralistic culture laughs at absolute truth, but the Bible claims The truth is revealed and can be known in scripture under the inspiration of the spirit of God or the spirit of truth, John 14, and in the person of Christ. Truth is characteristic of God and it's only as we come to know God, have a personal relationship with God who is truth, can we know the truth and know reality. Genuine truth is rooted in the eternal God, all-powerful, unchangeable, So what God has revealed to us through the perfect revelation of his word is the final matter of all truth. Paul says that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1.25. So Jesus doesn't show up to teach us or just communicate truth. He is the truth. And it says that's the mission. For the purpose I was born, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth, to reveal to you the truth and the true God. Now, Truth is a very foundational in John's gospel, in the account of John's gospel. It's not just intellectual facts. Truth, according to John, is truth that changes us. It orients life around truth because Jesus is the truth. Therefore, when we're rightly related to God, who is the truth, can we grasp what Jesus is saying, that everyone who is of this truth of God listens to my voice? That word listen is to pay attention and to be conformed with what's being said. Do you understand what he's saying? It's not just intellectual assent, but the disclosure of God in truth is is the way in which he is building his kingdom. When we receive him, when we love him, we bow our knee to him as king, we know the truth. And the truth, the Bible says, will set us free. That truth will set us free. We'll walk in the light, we'll have life. Again, the irony. (laughs) Jesus is bound and on trial And it is really Pilate who is bound by sin and darkness and on trial. He's confronted with the light of the world and must decide whether he prefers darkness or whether he prefers the light. And the same is true with all of us. Verse 38 to close. Can you put up verse 38 for me? Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt. You have a custom, though, to release one man at the Passover feast, that week-long feast. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They said, no. They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. John says he's a robber. Others say he's an insurrectionist and he's a murderer. So he's got a colorful rap sheet. Okay, that's what basically what it means. And he says, I don't find no fault in him, and he'll say it over and over again. But notice the text. He's brought before Pilate. Pilate's afraid. Pilate will soon turn him over. The Jews want nothing to do with him. They want him crucified, and he's being pressured to be handed over and then to be executed. Here's the implication. Wanting to be our own king is the essence of sin. The Jews refuse to bow their knee, the Gentiles want nothing to do with him, and will, will succumb to fear, and they will hand him over to be crucified. Everybody has a part in that, not just the Jewish people. You and I as well. Because we that's the essence of sin. We want to be our own king. We want to be our own Lord. We want to be our own savior. We want to be God. We want to be number one. Whether it's at home, whether it's in our relationship, whether it's work, we want to be number one. And here's the reality, family. The truth is Jesus does not share his supremacy with anyone. When we refuse to repent, turn from our sins, and turn from being our own king, we want to get rid of him too do away with him. I'm not bowing my knee. And what's interesting, and we'll talk more about Barabbas next week, Barabbas' name literally means son of Abba, son of the father. Do you want son of the father? Or do you want Christ, the real son of the father? We'll take Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas. We want to be our own king. No one's going to tell us. Now, you may have come, and we're going to close here. Let me just, Bear with me two more minutes. very important. You may, not be, you may not have come to church this morning thinking a lot about truth. What is truth? I don't know. Well, let's, let's talk about it today, okay? But truth is very important. In fact, truth comes up every single moment of every single day of your life. You believe certain truth claims about yourself, even if they're false. But you believe them to be true. Things like who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why is the world so broken and so messed up? See, when you answer those questions, those are truth claims. See, if you think you are here, who am I? I am some sludge that had formed itself or some, some cosmic banging going on. I'm, I'm just randomly here. That's a truth claim. What is my purpose? I really don't have a purpose. There's no real nothing going on, there's no real purpose in life, and I'm just wandering around. It's messed up around here, and I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. It just really stinks. And your purposes of that will never satisfy. You'll go from one pursuit after another, whether relationships, power, money, whatever it may be, you will search and pursue something which defines you that gives you purpose, meaning, and value in life. And yet, deep down inside, you know this world is messed up. You have no idea how it's going to fix. You're part of the problem. And you're without purpose, aimless. Now listen, when King Jesus invades your life, and the truth of God is revealed through the person and work of Christ, that truth will set you free. See, you go from being a mistake to the crowning glory of God's creation, created in the imago Dei, where God, your creator, bestows upon you value and dignity and worth. I belong to the King. And when Jesus Christ invades my life and your life and takes his rightful place, I have purpose to love, to serve, to worship Him. And when Jesus Christ, the King, knocks you off your throne and takes His rightful place, and you recognize that He died as a payment for your sins, the sins you commit of wanting to be your own God, your own Savior, pursuing the supremacy of self, that's why the world's messed up. But when He invades your life, you can have hope. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who, who went to the cross, died for your sins, will ro- rose again, will again come and restore, renew everything. Every human being, I believe, knows that this is a jacked up, messed up world. And we all hope that it doesn't stay this way. And I'm here to tell you that the coming King has come. His kingdom has begun. And someday His kingdom will come and there'll be healing full restoration, no more poverty, no more pain, no more racism, no more hatred, no more murder. You see, the nature and reality of Jesus' kingdom is that he comes not first to challenge Caesar's kingdom, but to reconcile men and women to God. What about you this morning? Will you bow down and put your sword down and take yourself off the throne and rightfully give Jesus the kingship of your life where he can bring healing and forgiveness and restoration. He'll answer the questions, who am I? Why am I here? Is it ever gonna be right? The kingdom of God answers those questions. We're gonna sing and we're gonna worship. My prayer is that you come to that place and bow your knee to him. Died for you, rose for you, and worship him together. Father, thank you. Even in this arduous, very dark place in this narrative, in the life of Jesus, we see him serving people, loving people, proclaiming truth that he came for the purpose of revealing your awesome holiness, our broken sinfulness, and yet your love, your mercy, your grace your beauty, all of that by the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel. God, please, as we, as your children, respond right now together, singing, Lord, we pray you would do a work in our hearts. Move, Spirit of God, draw us near to Jesus, we pray.